Just kidding. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> all right, mate. You good to go? Yeah, I'll start. Yeah. All right, let's do it. <laughs> Hi, I'm Tobias Carlisle. This is the Acquirers Podcast. My special guest today is Phil Back. He's the CEO of Exponential ETFs. He's got a really interesting background and he's got some really interesting ETFs. So we're going to ask him about that right after this. Tobias Carlisle is the founder and principal of Acquire's Funds. For regulatory reasons, he will not discuss any of the Acquire's Funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Acquire's Funds or affiliates. For more information, visit acquiresfunds.com. Hi, Phil. How are you doing? Hi, how are you? Thank you for having me on. My absolute pleasure. What is a reverse market cap? <laughs> so reverse cap is very simple. We take the, uh, in this case, it's on the S&P 500, and we take the index constituents of the S&P 500. Now, whereas typically the S&P 500, of course, is weighted biggest to smallest, so it's weighted by market cap, um, we take the uh, the reciprocal of the market cap, so one over the market cap, and then reweight the weights based on that. So what you get is a portfolio where rather than being tilted towards the bigger companies, you're tilted towards the smaller companies. You still have full representation over all 500 companies. It's still a large cap fund. The weighted average market cap of our fund is $18 billion. But what you get is really two things. One is you get a size tilt, so a small minus big factor exposure within large cap. Um, but the other thing is that if you think about how an index rebalances, certainly a market cap weighted index, every quarter you have a, a rebalance semi-annually, you have a reconstitution. And every time you rebalance, you re-up all the different stocks to their market cap. So you're selling the losers, you're selling the stocks that have gone down, and you're taking that excess capital, you're putting it into the winners. You're always, by rule, buying high and you're selling low. And what we're doing is the opposite. We're buying low, we're selling high. Every time a company runs up, when we hit rebalance, we take money off the table, we profit take, and we put it back into the companies at the bottom of the S&P 500 that we feel and historically have had more room to run. And uh, that that rebalance mechanism is actually a larger driver of historical alpha in the fund than the size tilt. So the rebalance is the thing that drives your return. So because you're, in some ways it's, it's it's a little bit it's like quasi value investing or or pseudo value investing is that is that what you is that what you see that's right. Yeah. The factor loads currently, and it's cyclical, but the factor loads right now are stronger towards value than they are towards size, which is very counterintuitive. Now, in an environment that's a value environment, that can shift back the other way. Not always. It's always going to be value bias because you're always buying low, you're buying low, and you're always putting money in market cap weight. By definition, you're going to put money in the most overvalued companies. You're going to have the higher allocation. But there are times where we hit a value cycle, we hit an anti-momentum cycle, which is very different than the one we're coming out of. But in those environments, we're going to have uh, less of a value bias than we would in an environment like we do today. That's interesting. So in, a, in an environment like this one, which is more biased towards momentum and large cap type stocks, you find that the portfolio looks more like a value portfolio, but that can change in a different environment. That's right. And it's the same thing on a sector level, too. So if you look at it today, you'll say, oh, this is like an anti-FANG, anti-technology portfolio. But if you look at it before the global financial crisis, it looked like an anti-financials portfolio. Because every time there's a sector that gets out of whack in the S&P, we're on the other side of it. 
So it's it's you know it's a very interesting strategy. It's if you could say if you could distill it down, some people distill it down and say, well, it's like a size play within large cap, which it is. But I think a, a more accurate definition of what it is is mean reversion as a factor. I was I was just going to say it is mean reversion, which is one of my pet subjects. Mean reversion is the is the is what's driving the returns there. Yes. So um, I, I I find it a it's a fascinating idea because it's one that. Uh, if anybody who follows the equal weight uh, S&P 500 versus the, the regular S&P 500, which is market capitalization weighted, can't help but fail to, I mean, you can't help but notice the fact that over time, the equal weight has outperformed pretty materially um, year on year. Not that, not that it happens every single year, but there's a, there is this gradual uh, advantage to being an equal weight. So I, I imagine that that is then magnified again when you when you look at the reverse market cap weight. Yeah, so, so it's not exactly a mirror image because in, in terms of the alpha between cap weight and equal weight and the alpha between equal and reverse cap, it's very close. The reason why it's not an exact mirror is because the smaller companies, the, the deviation to the mean is a lot smaller than on the large side. So for example, in uh, the S&P 500, the weighted average market cap, the mean market cap of all the companies is about 200 billion right now. But Apple is, I think it's still over a trillion, right? So it's five times bigger. There's no company in the S&P that's one fifth the size. So you have you have much more of a dispersion. What that also means for reverse cap is that you get a far more diversified basket in reverse cap than you do in market cap weight. So people talk a lot now about the concentration in uh, market cap weighting. The top holdings are you know four a little over four percent now in market cap weighting. The top weightings in reverse cap. We have now one that ran up to about 120 basis points, which is very unusual at rebalance. Historically, typically our top holdings have been 80 to 90 basis points, and it's just a much more diversified allocation across the 500 stocks. That's very interesting. That's not intuitive. That's not something that you would expect uh, thinking through it, but that's an interesting outcome. That's right. Yeah. The, the, the allocation of the 500, the skew of the, you know, from biggest to largest is very different. It's a lot flatter in reverse cap weight. And that's why we think it also has a lot of utility to be used alongside a cap weighted fund. If you say, you know what, it's, this is a bridge too far. I, you know, believe in, you know, Bogle never invested reverse cap. I'm just going with cap weight. Fine. Okay. That's, that's fine. You can do that, but then you can use reverse cap alongside market cap weight to further diversify. It's the same 500 stocks. So if you add it as a, you know, as a 10, 20, 30, 50% allocation alongside market cap weight, all of a sudden your overall uh, allocation to the 500 stocks is much more diversified. If you look at it by HHI, herfindel Hirschman, which is the sum of the squares of all the different weights of the 500 companies, you can bring down that HHI from 89 in a, in a market cap weighted 100% to 33 in a 50-50. So it's a drastic improvement over diversification. A lot of people will say, well, yeah, the S&P is concentrated. It's always been concentrated. It hasn't really hurt me. It's true. But one thing that people really are overlooking is the fact that historically, while there has been a lot of concentration in the S&P 500, what we're seeing today is not all that unusual relative to historically. What is unusual is that the top five companies now are all in the same sector and they have a lot of the same risks that are forward looking, not backwards looking like antitrust risks, risks of being able to penetrate the emerging markets. These are risks that Apple, Microsoft, Amazon, that they share in common, whereas historically you'd see, well, yeah, the top five companies in the S&P are always a high weight, but you'll have a utility, you'll have you know, a telecom, you'll have a more diversified group of stocks. So your portfolio at the moment, your underweight uh, technology is that is that fair? Well, relative to cap weight, 
relative, relative to, to market cap weight. Yep. And what, what are you overweight in that portfolio? Right now we've got, uh, like you said, it, it's a little bit of a value bias now. So we have uh, utilities are a little bit overweight. Um, I think financials, I'd have to take a look. Um, but uh, certainly utilities are, and, and, and we're seeing uh, a real value bias right now. It's a, it's a fascinating idea. Where, where did it come from? Well, I think it really started, and like you said, with equal weight. So in my background, I was at uh, Rydex Investments, which is now part of Guggenheim, um, and uh, uh, the ETF is actually now part of Invesco. But one of the products that I was the product manager on at the time was RSP, was the equal weight S&P 500. And we we're doing a lot of research, and we we're trying to explain why is it that equal weight outperforms large cap. And, you know, mostly it's a size tilt, but it's also the rebalance mechanism. And, you know, we did a lot of empirical studies on those two and, and how they impact and, and market cap weight. And what I was trying to do was say, well, how do we take that premium of equal over, over market cap and how do we extrapolate that? How do we either isolate that or provide more of that? And if you think about it, one of the analogies that we use a lot is tea. So nobody likes room temperature tea. People like hot tea or they like iced tea, right? One or the other. Nobody says, oh, I want to get a cup of room temperature tea. Well, the way we see it, equal weight is a half measure. Equal weight is room temperature tea. If you want that tilt, if you believe that the smaller companies in the S&P 500 have more growth potential and that's a better way to, to invest, then you should invest that way. And if you believe that market cap weighting and momentum is a better way to invest, then you should invest that way. So it's really, it's kind of the counterpoint or the, the other balance to market cap weighting. That's a great analogy. So... Um your background, before uh, you launched your own firm, Exponential, you were with the NYSE. What, yes. What, what were you doing there? So I was managing the ETF listings business um, by the end. For I was there for six years, and most of the time I was managing uh, ETF issuer relationships and launches uh, and market maker um, payment programs. So it's a lot of very geeky, nuanced market structure type stuff. Uh, I worked a lot on our um, actively managed generic listing standards, which nobody except for a few lawyers even knows what that is. But you know the, the, the rules that govern a lot of the ETF listings now, um, everyone knows that when you launch an ETF, you have to go to the SEC to the uh, uh, division of Investment Management to get approval, uh, what people aren't as familiar with is that you also have to go to the Division of Trading and Markets because not only does the issuer need permission from the SEC to launch, the exchange needs permission to be able to list it. And for whatever reason, the Division of Investment Management, uh, I'm sorry, the Division of Trading and Markets is the place where the SEC decided to hold up a lot of innovation that had been going on in the ETF space over the last few years. So it was a lot of market structure stuff. You know, right after I started, we had the flash crash and, you know, spent a long time working on that and different rules to help govern that. Uh, a lot of stuff working with market makers and a lot of legal stuff. Um, primarily really, you know, consulting with ETF issuers and helping them get products out. You must have seen some explosive growth in ETFs over that period. Is that is that sort of the that's is that the tipping point from when they sort of went from being a little bit less well known to being kind of right in the middle, right mainstream investment products? So the growth has actually been a little more steady than people think. It's we've had about twenty, like low twenties to thirty percent year over year growth in uh, AUM in ETFs going back about fifteen years now. And it's you know it's, it's when you talk about percentage growth, it's you know it, the numbers get bigger and bigger. So you see that tipping point, but it's been fairly steady. And you know what started out as a product primarily geared towards fee based advisors. Um, I'd say about you know. 15 years ago, maybe, or really where it started to pick up steam. Um, only in the last probably five to 10 years, people started to realize, hey, I can use the advantages and the benefits of an ETF in my buy and hold allocation strategy. So um, 
you know, ETFs were, were natural for broad benchmarks, for hedging, for overnight cash equitization, all that. Then people started to build allocation models of the ETF. And, and then we started to see, you know, more trading products. So uh, leveraging inverse funds and VIX based funds and different commodities, uh, gold, you know, because ETF is such a great access tool and a way to, to really have price discovery, not in a whole market, but in the ETF, it's just a natural. But what we're starting to see now that I think is unique is funds like ours, like, you know what, my actively managed or my rules-based process-driven buy and hold product that's not going to have a super high trading volume, but that makes sense for allocators to hold over the long term. This is the vehicle that's more efficient for that as well. So you've uh, before the NYSC. What what was your what was your you you were Rydex. So you've had a, you've had a really long history in ETFs. How did you get started in investing, and why were you attracted to ETFs? So I started my career as a trader, and I got one of those jobs back uh, 2000, 2001 or so, where it was you know hey show up. Do you have a pulse? We're gonna you know we're gonna give you an account to trade. Just a day trade. One of these. Um, uh, you know, NASDAQ um, momentum traders. And, uh, you know, they, I showed up for the interview. They checked my pulse. They said, I'm alive. Okay, they're going to register me for the Series 7 a month later. And if I pass the 7, I should come in. And if I don't pass it, don't come back. That was, that was it. And, and so I show up and, and I pass my 7. I show up. I'm all ready to go. And I'm ready for my training or whatever it is. And the head trader sits down with me and says, okay, if you're going to buy any offer, it's control P to post a bid. Show me all the keystrokes. And then he leaves. I said, wait, wait, when do I buy? When do I sell? He's like, oh, I just told you, control P, control S. I said, no, no, but when do I buy? I was, I was like, oh, okay, if you're good, you'll figure it out. And that was it, and walked away. And that was the extent of the training. Now, as you might imagine, you know, those times, I mean, that was, you know, really right when electronic trading started to take hold and, and nobody can compete with um, with an algorithm. But at the time, we were coming off of an environment where people could. And there were people, there were 200 traders on the desk in downtown New York. One of them, I remember, was an MD that left his practice because, I mean, it was fun. It was like playing a video game all day. And people were making money for a short time, but not forever. And when I started, there were 200 traders on the desk. Within six months, there were 20 and, you know, another six months months after that, that firm and many like it had shut down. And a lot of those, you know, day trading firms kind of converted into different, uh, you know, shops where they're trying to get people to put money in and, and you know, all sorts of uh, nefarious activities started to go on. So I became an FX trader and was trading the graveyard shift and was, you know, not getting, not seeing a lot of daylight. And it was, it was, you know, it was rough and I'm at a social function and I'm standing in a circle and somebody says, oh, you're a trader. What should I invest in? I'm doing like short-term momentum trading on currencies. Just doing a little bit of analysis, sending out to clients. So I just said, I'm like, just buy a low-cost portfolio of ETFs. You know, don't uh, don't try to buy anything too crazy. And one of the people that I hadn't even been introduced to yet was in the circle that I was standing. He said, I can't believe you just said that. I'm about to start a company on that exact thesis. And it was a guy named Sander Gerber who had a hedge fund. And he was just starting a company called XTF Asset Management, some of which the data company, XTF, is a derivative of that. And it's the same company. It's still around. Most of the company's long gone. We were, gonna, we were basically an ETF strategist before it existed. Um, but that was all the way back in, I don't know, about 05, 04. And uh, I worked there as kind of a, the jack-of-all-trades analyst type. And from there, I went to a company called XShares, and we were a startup ETF issuer. We did, uh, I built a carbon credit ETF, which is long gone, long forgotten. We did uh, target date ETFs with TD Ameritrade. We had these uh, health shares that were pretty um, uh, pretty much hated, <laughs> you know, mocked across the industry. But we, we had some stuff that was pretty interesting. And, and uh, ultimately, the company did not make it. And that's when I went over to Rydex. And, you know, at Rydex, we did the currency shares. We did the equal weights. We did the pure styles. Uh, and then I did some alternative mutual funds for which I got my Kaya, then went over to Nisey. 
So you've had this very long uh, career, really, in ETFs, which is a little bit unusual given that they are reasonably new. Um, at what stage do you think I need to I need to launch my own ETF? I need to get out there and, and show the world what reverse market cap weight can do. Well, it's hard to say. I mean, you know, there's there's two parts of it. One is, you know, what is the validity of the idea that I'm trying to come out with and what's the market appetite? Am I solving a problem? And the other is my personal ambitions. You know, do I want to start my own company? And, you know, it was really the latter that that drove a lot of it, unfortunately. But it wasn't, um, you know, I had some I had some personal, I had some health issues, I had some other personal issues and I had uh, a point of crisis in my life. And I came out of it and with a, with a very different attitude. I'd been very happy at the exchange and, you know, I was very comfortable and, and it was, you know, it was a good job and I was lucky to have it. And I, I hopefully did a good job. But um, when I came out of that personal crisis, I had a very different attitude where, um, you know, life is short and life can you know, change and, and, you know, be taken very quickly and uh, really wanted to maximize the time I had and really uh, eliminated a lot of the fear from my thinking and from my process. And I think, you know, the what had held me back from doing something like this earlier was that fear. So what what I what really started was not reverse cap was our flagship product, the ACSI, the customer satisfaction ETF. And that that started because I was you know, at NYSE, everyone knows the NASDAQ indexes. Nobody really knows the NYSE indexes. We did have an index business, but we were trying to build it out. And, you know, we we're working on different ideas and different ways to do things. And I had a regular shopping experience. There was a uh, Kmart near my house. I don't know if they have Kmart by you, but but it's it's horrendous. Now, it's a good postscript to the story that that Kmart is closed. But I had to buy a bunch of stuff for my kids for camp, like bathing suits and bug spray and things like that. And the Target was a bit of a drive. Um, it was like maybe 15 minutes away, and the Kmart was right there. Well, how bad could it be? How bad could it possibly be? I'm just going to go to Kmart. It's right here. And it was horrible. It, it was that bad. You know, there's no prices. There's no anything. I'm waiting online. There's like nine ladies. Each one of them like slowly rests their their purse on the counter and starts writing a check. And I'm like I'm looking around. I'm like, this is horrible. I'm never coming back here. So I start thinking, well, okay, I'm never coming back here. Let's take me on a on a you know more statistically significant sample. Let's say everyone who goes to Kmart today across the country has a miserable experience and none of them are repeat buyers. Well, how do you capture that in the data? That's a leading indicator. That'll show up in the balance sheet, but it'll show up after the fact, after next quarter when people stop coming back. So how do you capture that ahead of time and, and get ahead of that? And uh, I get back to my desk. I know I was looking for consumer data, sentiment data. I wasn't sure exactly what I'm looking for, but I start you know, Googling and searching around. It turns out the world's expert in quantifying customer satisfaction is a professor who has a few businesses based on that right near me in Ann Arbor, Michigan, a half hour away. So uh, I, I called him. I said, oh, you know, my name is Phil and I'm interested in seeing your data. I have a thesis. And if you give me your data, I'll back test it and create a financial instrument on it. And, you know, had lunch with him and it made the pitch. And, and I said, you know, look, I think we, you know, if this if the thesis holds and we see a signal in the data, you know, we can maybe license an index to like a wisdom tree or a Van Eck and and, you know, make as much as eight basis points would be like four basis points for you and four for the exchange. So it's four basis points. So, yeah, you know, isn't that great? Says, do you know that I have a hedge fund that charges two and twenty <laughs> using the data? <laughs> I had no idea. So um, obviously that project didn't go anywhere, but we stayed in touch for a couple of years. And in that time that we stayed in touch, you know, we we're seeing flows move out of hedge funds, especially for domestic equity, move out of hedge funds into the ETF, and and you know decided that this was a better structure for the investment. Um, once we built the team and once we had the company operationally up and running, I said, well. 
you know, now I've got I've got a team. We have all these ideas. I have all these other funds I want to do. So we said, all right, well, let's start with one. Pick your best idea. We'll start there and start building out. And that was reverse cap. So th- just to go back to the uh, ACSI, the, assu- uh, the consumer sentiment. Is it consumer sentiment? Satisfaction. Satisfaction. Pardon me. Um, ha- so they look at their, their conducting surveys or their, how, how are they actually gathering that data? So they are conducting surveys. Um, they do over 300,000 surveys a year. And all the data is normalized uh, by seven different factors. We have a, a patented econometric model that we use to eliminate outliers and, and, and various things. So it's a very quantitative data set, um, which is ironic because a lot of people you know, view it as more of a qual- And it is measuring something more qualitative. But the data gathering process is very differentiated from the others in that space of market research because their approach is extremely quantitative. Um, and then, um, you know, ultimately we use that as a signal. All the data is published publicly and it's published historically also from in sample re- returns on theacsi.org. And you can see, and, and, you know, historically it's been a tremendous driver of alpha, um, both in the hedge fund and just looking at the pure data. Uh, so the fund launched in November of 2016. And you know we don't use we we don't use any company in the fund that we don't have a statistically significant sample on. So for example, everyone wants to know what we think about Tesla. And you know I personally I think Tesla's are cool. I don't know. You know, reading a lot of the uh, the debate on it is very interesting. But in terms of the data, and it's a you know purely rules based fund, so you know our own opinions have no bearing in the allocations. Um, we can't get a normalized statistically significant sample in order to be able to test of Tesla owners because there just aren't enough of them. So we have really good data on Ford and Honda and Toyota and and all the others, but until we have that uh, data set, we can't use Tesla. So it, it's it's an interesting product because you know there there are certain areas where we have better data and worse, and there are certain sectors that are more elastic to the data than others. So if you think about it, like um, if 20 people get food poisoning at a Chipotle in Massachusetts, you're going to have a 15% reduction in people walking through the doors in Texas across the country the next day immediately. There's high, high elasticity there, whereas Wells Fargo could have another banking scandal and you're not going to move your mortgage. You know, you're, you're probably not going to move your wealth management account the next day. It's a much longer cycle. So because of that, we look at the data sector by sector in order to capture the different elasticities. All the allocations are relative to its own sector of all the different stocks. So you're, you're taking the satisfaction surveys and then you're mapping them to either a product or a ticker. And That's then, right. And you... You, you aggregate that up and then you look at it on a sector by sector basis to create the portfolio. Exactly. Yeah. So so we're not measuring uh, sentiment or satisfaction on stocks. We're looking at the products and services and then we roll them up. So young brands will have m- many scores and we have a proprietary model to estimate revenue contribution and to put that into the overall score. Because, you know, again, we're not looking at sentiment on whether people are going to buy or sell the stock. We're trying to understand, are there going to be repeat buyers? Does the company have pricing power? How is Apple able to charge three times the amount of some of the Chinese phone manufacturers in China, three times the amount for phones with identical specs? That's because they have that pricing power through the brand, through the customer satisfaction. Maybe it's through the ecosystem that people are locked into. But those are things that we can capture that we feel are not necessarily priced in. So it's, a, it's very much a leading indicator in that it, it shows yes. up in earnings quarters or maybe even year a year or so later. Yeah, the, our research shows three to 11 months is the timeline that from when we start to see changes until we see it, typically we'll see it hit in the form of a big earning surprise. So you get a big hit or miss and it says, oh, wow, I can't believe, you know, I use Kmart before as an example. I can't believe, or Sears. I can't believe Sears missed. Well, 
can you? <laughs> I mean, think about it. Would you want to, you know, be stuck having to go shopping at Sears? Probably not. It's it's always intuitive after the fact. You never see a company, or very rarely see a company go out of business or or face troubles where it's like, oh wow, that's so that's so surprising because I loved I loved that product or I loved sh- shopping there. Very rare, very rare. So what's the what's the unifying theme between your uh, ETFs? How how are you selecting ideas and moving them towards a uh, moving them towards a fund or electing not to proceed with them? So what we what we think is going to happen long term in the industry is there's going to be convergence between active and passive, where active management is going to be transparent, rules based systematic processes, and all of our funds have that in them. So you know, everything we do is an index fund. And of course, an index fund, in the parlance of we're creating an index that follows a rule set, the rule set is all transparent and public. So everyone could see exactly what we're doing. And then when we manage the fund as portfolio managers, we're managing to the tracking error of the index. So we can't say, oh, we've underperformed for a little bit, we're going to try to catch up and make a bet like there's no that's taken out of the table, which I think is a big benefit for investors. But you know, we wouldn't do anything that we don't think has long term viability where the investment thesis should, in our view, be as valid 10 years, 20 years, 100 years from now, to the extent that we can see uh, as much as it is today. We, we, we don't do a lot of the, you know, uh, kind of fast money products that we think are hot right now, but may not be hot 10 years from now. So just for people who don't know, can you go through the process of how, how does somebody set up an ETF? What's the from from having an idea to getting it listed on an exchange? So there are several, it's, you know, there are different ways that you can structure it. And depending on how you do, it can be uh, it could be a difficult process. It could be a pretty easy process if you use a lot of service providers. It's not an insurmountably difficult process. So it can be done and, you know, lean on your service providers if you're thinking about doing it because they can be of a lot of help. The key, the key player that a lot of people don't know, the kind of the unsung hero in a lot of cases, is the fund administrator. And the fund administrator does a lot. They, they calculate the NAV on a daily basis, but they also interface with the authorized participants who create and redeem. And all this is kind of behind the scenes. ETFs are so elegant and simple on the front end. You buy it, you get the exposure. It's really easy to do. On the back end, there's a lot of moving parts. So, um, you know, ETFs are created and redeemed in blocks of shares through authorized participants. I'm not going to bother explaining all that, but but if you think about it in terms of, when you buy a pair of shoes, you go to Foot Locker and buy a pair of Nikes. Nike doesn't make any money. They make money when they drop off a truckload of shoes at Foot Locker. And then you go and you buy a pair and you draw down the inventory. So the APs, they're the ones who are sending those truckloads of shares of the ETF to the to the market. And then the market makers are selling them one pair of shoes at a time. So this is kind of one way to think about it. Um, the administrators also handle all the cash. And, and you know, when, when you take about when you talk about taking the fees out of the fund, that's all hand, handled automatically by the uh, fund administrator. A lot of the compliance functions are handled there. So, you know, the key things to think about are you have a trust, you have an advisor, and then in some cases you have a sub-advisor. We act as sub-advisor for a lot of funds. And all those three those three levels uh, really manage what we would say is like the primary market of the ETF. So what happens between the authorized participant and the fund itself and what the fund is holding and trading. And then you have the whole secondary market, which is the capital markets function. And that's the market maker, the lead market maker, the exchange where it's listed, uh, the tracking error of the fund. So what's the difference between you know where the bid ask is at any given moment and where the fair value is? And that needs to be managed as well. So your, your own personal um, investments, do you do you, uh, how, how is that philosophy sort of manifest in, in the firm? You don't want to invest the way I personally invest. So I, I have, uh, uh, 
over 100% probably of my, you know, of my personal in uh, exponential, the company. So, you know, we're, we're, we're um, just hitting our third year. We're still early stage and we're, you know, at the point where to the extent that I had additional discretionary income, I'd be putting investing it into the company to help build out, um, you know, the, the way I would uh, invest for my grandmother or widow or orphan. I, you know, believe in our funds 100 percent to the extent that I believe in equity investing. I think that, you know, personally, there is a very high likelihood that that you know markets could be choppy going forward. I think that the home country bias is very pronounced, and and the valuations in the U.S. are very pronounced. So, um, uh, you know, I, I I think our funds are, you know, the best if you know possible. I don't know what I'm allowed to say from compliance, but uh, but I believe in our funds in terms of domestic equity exposure. Um, if I was designing an allocation model for myself or for a client, it would be more diversified than that. Right. It's a that that home country bias uh, is is very pronounced in lots of different portfolios. Just for the simple reason, it's so hard to invest in foreign markets because you get the tax complication and the withholding and all that all of those sort of issues. Are there any uh, funds that you don't manage who who deal with that well? Do you think is that something that you examine? I, I think there are some interesting funds. Yeah. So so. There is no equal weight. So, so you know, of course, along with reverse cap, I, I believe very much in, in equal weight. I think reverse is more of equal than equal. But, but um, you know, th- there's a real a real lack of options in international and emerging markets um, outside of market cap weight when it comes to ETFs, if that's the way that you're going to access it. Um, I think that, you know, when you look at a lot of the uh, foreign markets and you look at market cap weighting, the bias, is the, or the bias, but the concentration is even more pronounced. I mean, you look at Taiwan, it's like over half – Taiwan semiconductors, if it's unmanaged and unconstrained. Um, if you look at the broad MSCI global, I think right now U.S. is over 50 percent, over 50 percent, which is, you know, which is which is very risky. So, look, I believe in diversifying my bets, and and you know, I w- I would you know most likely, and I'm kind of throwing this off the cuff, but but I'm most likely to take more of an equal weight approach to the different markets, even if they're smaller. Um, to me, that 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 you know that doesn't necessarily be need to be reflected in my in my bets. Um, I think that. Uh, you know, a lot of the emerging market funds that, that I think there, I believe there's one that equally weights uh, um, China, Russia, India, and um, uh, I think there's one that allocates evenly among those. And, and that would be that would be something that I would find more appealing. Um, there's also a very strong thesis, I think, about the consumers in emerging markets. And there's a couple of funds that address that. And uh, I think there is, you know, a very good reason to be more bullish in those. There's also an upcoming fund that allocates based on freedom, which I think is, is really a fascinating concept. Um, very interested to see how that does for international exposure. Um, I think they'll probably, you know, be a little more underweight China than I personally would want to be. But within a lot of the allocations, I think it makes a lot of sense. There's a direct correlation. You cannot deny there's a direct correlation between economic freedom and prosperity that follows. The uh, the exposure to foreign markets is a very tough one. It's one I think about a lot um, because I'm uh, I was born in Australia, raised in Australia, so I look at the Australian index, and the Australian index is half financials, and I think it's about it's fifteen to thirty percent basic materials, which you might expect because it's a mining country, and Australians are overweight. The Australian index, Canadians are the same. It's a heavily financial, lots of basic materials, and Canadians are overweight. That so. It, it becomes hard to kind of get out of your own uh, your own stock market home country bias. It's real for everybody else in the world. The thing that makes it uh, pressing for U.S. investors, I think, is that um, 
the U.S. is overvalued relative to the the, sort of the size of its GDP in a, in a global sense, which is something that happened in the in the 80s to Japan. It was sort of it was a massive stock market relative to its GDP, which was no doubt very big. Is there uh, that's a theme that I think is probably that the U.S. goes back to sort of the stock market goes back to its sort of uh, GDP weighting globally. Do you are there any broad themes that you 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 look at and maybe move an ETF in that direction or just for your own personal investing? Well, I, I would say that the market doesn't care where you live. So you know the whole thing about the home country bias. If anything, you would want to be underweight your home country because you already have enough exposure to that economy. If the economy goes to hell where you live. You're going to feel it. You want to be diversified outside of it more so than than anything else. Um, but uh, I mean, look, you know, I'm 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 bullish to emerging markets. I think you know we're we're hitting a global world. Um, you know, more and more opportunities and technologies are being as readily available across the world as they are uh, in the countries where they're developed, be it here, be it in Europe, be it anywhere else. So I think, you know, we're going to continue to see emerging markets and even frontier markets to a degree catch up in in those markets where there is the right environment, where you do have that, you know, economic freedom, where you do have the right infrastructure, where you do have, you know, a trusted government. I think when you have the right infrastructure in place, um, that can happen, it could happen quick. What about other uh, broader themes besides sort of geography? Is there any uh, consumer products or uh, uh, developmental technologies that that lead your thinking? I like I like alternatives. So specifically market neutral alternatives, um, and, you know, especially given, you know, where like, like I indicated where I think we might be in a cycle. Um, so, you know, look, firms, uh, funds like like, uh, you know, M&A theme funds or, um, you know, funds like that, uh, different spreads. Um, commodities are interesting. I mean, it's impossible to time. You know, commodities. We're looking at some signals in commodities that nobody's ever looked at before, and you know, you know, we'll see what the results are. We're close to getting results on a on a thesis there that may or may not lead to something. Uh, you never know. Um, you know, you, you run these, as, as you know, you know, you spend a lot of time on data. Sometimes you have something amazing. Sometimes you don't. The data tells a tale. Um, but I, you know, I think in general, when when you know, when you look at alternative, people think well, alternatives are hedge funds or alternatives are PE, and you know, you can you can have a, a you know broad equity value product, uh, strategy that's delivered in a hedge fund, uh, PE, I think there's some research now that says, look, if you take leveraged microcaps, you're going to get the same thing as a PE, you know, minus the smoothing effect. So, you know, you get more liquidity that way. So when people talk about alternatives, I think they're kind of missing the point. You know, you want something that, that has no correlation to stocks or bonds where you already have too much exposure you know, not you personally, but, but, you know, most people, um, and, uh, you know, a lot of those alt strategies like convertible bond arbitrage is one that I like a lot. Um, you know, uh, other long short strategies, I think, you know, there, there's more opportunity to do funds there. And I think there, those are places where I personally love to invest. That private equity, uh, model is a good one where you only have to report on a, uh, on a, on a, re on an irregular basis, a quarterly basis, and so you can't see the movements in between. It does give that impression of having very smooth returns. Yeah, it's, it's great if you can do it. And then, you know, also you can write down stuff that you can keep a valuation where you want it to be with certain tricks of the trade for, for a long time. So, you know, people look at private equity returns and you have to normalize it for the smoothing. You have to normalize it for... Um, you know what you're actually getting in a market, and then you know you add in the the liquidity, um, you know the opposite of the liquidity premium, the fact that you you have no liquidity for for long periods of time, and I think private equity is a lot riskier than people give than people think about, especially now 
especially coming off a period where we've had, you know, look, these guys can access free capital, you know, with interest rates being so low and we've had an economy that's expanding. That's a great market for you. You can't not make money in PE. You buy something, you know, yeah, you add a little bit of management juju. You kind of, you know, play around with it and, and then you package it up and, and you make a nice return on it. But no matter how bad you are, it's like flipping a house in, in, in the middle of a housing boom. No matter how bad, all right, so I thought I can spend $20,000 on granite and add $30,000. It doesn't matter because the market saved you anyway. The market went up you know, by so much that you can't lose money. And I think we see that now with PE, not to say that there aren't great private equity companies and investors, there are, but the idea that any private equity company is just a better bet than the public markets uh, just doesn't seem like something that could hold on an indefinite time horizon. That's uh, that was Dan Rasmussen, I think, who did that yes. research at Verdad, where he said if you if you looked at the the factors driving the returns to private equity, it tends to be it's a leveraged small cap bet that he can capture. I don't think he has an ETF, but he captures it in a in an LP anyway, just investing in public markets. Um, while we've got the expert on ETFs, the question that uh, I'm very interested in there's there's talk of a, the, the ETF rule when that is implemented. Can you just explain what the ETF rule is and what you think the prospects are for that being in, uh, implemented in the sort of short to medium term? So if you look at the ETF, the the SEC rules that govern the ETFs, like I said, there's a few. You have the exchange rules, you have the um, the 40 Act rules, you have the you know registered investment. Component. I mean, there's a whole bunch of different rules, but the the main rule that governs ETFs is called the 40 Act rule. The 40 Act stands for the 1940 Act. In other words, 80 years ago, literally, ETFs are being governed off a rule that's 80 years old. I mean, how crazy is that? 80 years ago, there were no ETFs. There were certainly no VIX futures. I mean, you know, so these funds are being governed, you know. So, so in order to be able to list an ETF, you have to abide by the 40 Act. So you have to exempt yourself from, which is a mutual fund rule. So you have to exempt yourself from those requirements that are like a fund and not an ETF. It's a little bit confusing, but basically in those ways that the ETF differs from the mutual fund, you need this thing called exemptive relief that says that you're allowed to be an ETF in those ways that are different from what's laid out in the 40 Act rule. Now, it makes no sense to have a rule like that and to have an exemption like that from an 80-year-old rule when now all of a sudden ETFs are the, are the investment vehicle of choice for the modern investor. So – the SEC has been working on a new rule called the ETF rule, and you know it'll you know more directly and instead of um, instead of managing by exemption, it's going to manage more proactively. Say these are the rules, a level playing field. You don't have two companies that could do leverage, and nobody else can. Two companies that could do custom creation redemptions, nobody else can. It's going to be a level playing field. Here's the line in the sand of what we'll allow, what we won't allow, and and everyone can go ahead and launch their fund knowing what the schedule, what the requirements are. So net net, it's a good thing. It's going to take a long time to come out. People think it's it's ready to go. Um, these things always take longer. Uh, the, you know, the SEC hasn't published it. Yet in the um, what's called the uh, the Federal Register, which is really the first step of the process, then it goes through a lengthy comment period. Assuming there's going to be a lot of comments, which there are, it could go for a process as long as 280 days. Um, every lawyer is going to want to weigh in. Every capital markets desk is going to want to weigh in. There's you know little issues around the edges that are kind of up for debate. I think the core rules are pretty much you know consensus will will agree to them. I think they're pretty straightforward. Um, now it was very kind of the SEC to wait. For every company that wants it, just about to have exemptive relief before they announce that they're working on this rule, because you're solving a problem for companies that are coming in to get exemptive relief 
that most companies or most large asset management companies already have. So it would have been very helpful 10 years ago. Today, there's really, you know, and there's now a trickle of, of new exemptive reliefs that are coming out. Um, that exemptive relief process, if you're not doing anything too funky, if it's a vanilla strategy, you can get that exemptive relief in a, in, a, in a few months. And it's not that challenging. There was a time where that was a year or two years and, you know, rumors that lawyers would charge, you know, way above a million, two million dollars in some cases to get it. So at, the, at that time, back then, this would have been very helpful. Now, it can make things a little more efficient. It's not going to have the biggest difference in the world. Companies can still now, they can get their own exemption in between until the ETF rule is out there. And it's not prohibitively expensive or timely anymore. I think it was proposed something like 10 years ago initially, wasn't it? Just there were bigger fish to fry at the time because the uh, the, the global economy was tanking. But it, it sounded like it was going to come back on the books last year, but still not yet. Well, the SEC did publish uh, their kind of their, their working document and what they're thinking in terms of the rules. And they opened it up for comment periods and, and a lot of the industry commented. Um, you know, there are things around the edges that will cause some debate. So, for example, you know, the IOPV is the intraday, the every 15 second value of the fund that gets published in real time. And some people think it's very helpful. I think it's very helpful if you're trading a fund and there's a wide bid ask spread, you can reference it and see what the fair value is in real time. A lot of people think it's harmful because – there's nobody really vetting out if the index provider is right and is that truly fair value. And then you have a whole host of ETFs that are open either from a foreign market while the foreign market's closed or in fixed income. You don't have real-time transactional price to price it off of. So in some cases, it can be harmful. You can get bad data. So there's a lot of debate in the industry whether that should be killed or kept and is there value there. Um, a few things like that that are kind of around the edges that people are going to um, you know, argue about. But I think uh, I think it will happen. It's just the SEC timeline is always longer, always better the over on an SEC approval, always. Uh, one of the uh, interesting things that might happen is that uh, at the moment, the index funds get a special capital gains tax treatment that's not available to active funds. Um, when that is that, do you, do you think that that gets implemented? And what do you think the impact of that is? I don't know. I, I don't know much about that. And I'm not sure if, uh, um, if that will come to pass. I think it's kind of interesting because it's there. Are, there are funds that are for the capital gains tax uh, treatment that you get in a in a in an index fund is so helpful. It makes that index ETF. It, it's better than running it as a managed account because you don't get the flow through for the tax purposes. Better than a mutual fund. Better than lots of other structures. But when the active uh, investors are able to take advantage of that, that means that you can just put any hedge fund, mutual fund into an ETF wrapper and trade it as an active product. Yeah, I wonder if that's right. Uh, yeah, and, and it's a huge advantage. I mean, that's, you know, probably more than half of the ETF advantage right there. And, and that's that's why you see ETFs so popular in the U.S. and popular, but less so uh, outside the U.S. because you don't have the same tax benefit. I, I, I think what that might be is non-transparent active ETFs. So when you, when you look at an active ETF, I think the easiest way to think about it, right now we have active ETFs on the market, but they have daily transparency, meaning that they disclose on a daily basis what they hold with a T plus one lag. So you really see two days ago what they held, but you can see on a daily basis what they held. Um, so if you think about an index fund and you think about the way an index fund rebalances, Let's say an index would rebalance every single day. It's the same operational process that would be what we call um, active transparent. You get, you know, you publish the basket, the portfolio manager trades the next day, everyone sees and prices off the new basket. 
Um, what a lot of people are working on now are non-transparent active where there's total discretion and the uh, the ETF manager would show their holdings on a quarterly basis. Um, there's a couple there's a couple different ways that people are addressing it. Some are using proxy portfolios. You say, all right, we're going to because the market maker still needs to price in real time off the portfolio. Now, if they don't know what the portfolio is. You know, how are they going to make a market? You know, they can say, all right, well, it's domestic equity. So it could be at, you know, we started the day at $25 and the market's flat. So I'm going to price it at $14.95 by $25.05. I'm probably right, but maybe I had a 5% allocation to that stock that's on the news today for a big scandal. How do you price that in if you don't know what's in there? So um, one one methodology is to use what's called a, por uh, a proxy portfolio, where you have uh, either you run a risk factor optimization or you do some other representative basket. You say this is similar enough to what the actual is, and you price off of that. Another one is to use a blind trust, where you have only the market maker knows what's in it and nobody else. I think all of those have some issues. They solve some problems, and you know, kind of remains to be seen whether the SEC will approve those or not. If they did, I think a lot of those structures could lose those tax benefits because if you can't create a redeem in real time, which you can't do if you don't know what stocks to deliver, then there is no in-kind transaction. And that's where ETFs get that tax efficiency. That's a great answer. Look, Phil Back, uh, thank you very much for your time today. If, uh, if folks want to get in contact with you, what's the best way to track you down and, and see what you're doing? ExponentialETFs.com is where we are. I'm on Twitter a lot, too much, on PhilBach1. And uh, yeah, thank you, Toby. Thanks for having me on. My pleasure.